Let me jump into it this morning. Uh, I'm just really thankful that Pastor Dan is here this morning. I just want to say that he and his family suffered a great loss yesterday in the life of an unborn child. And so would you just please keep Dan and Jennifer in your prayers. As, as much as that hurts, they hold on to the eternal life that we have in Christ. And while it makes times like this hard, it, it adds even to our celebration as we look forward to the life that is to come. So just keep the boyers in your, in your prayers this morning. Well, it's 4th of July weekend. I know a lot of people are traveling and are not here. Our whole skull section is gone. And <laughs> they're up in Wisconsin and others traveling. According to the AAA, some 48 million Americans are going to be traveling this weekend. And 42 million of them are going to hit the road. Despite the high fuel costs, they'll be driving. Now, you know, road trips aren't as bad as they used to be. Remember the days when you had to have a great big paper map? to go on a road trip and you'd unfold this thing and it was awkward and, and then trying to read it, when you, when you go to like fold it to get to what you wanna see, it's usually going against the grain of the folds and then it tears and it was just a real pain in the neck. Well, if you miss that, April 5th every year is a national reader roadmap day. <laughs> you know, why we would wanna drag that back up when we've moved on, I don't know. Maybe we can just teach our kids something about what it used to be like in the good old days of a family road trip. But while I, I mean, paper, we don't need it anymore. We have GPS and we have, uh, you know, Google Maps. Even when I fly, I don't use paper charts anymore. It's all electronic on my iPad, and that's just so nice. And one of the things I like about the electronic maps is that you can zoom in or out as far as you want. You can look at the details or you can pull back. But have you ever been in a map program and you zoom in, and then you like kind of lose track of where you are. And so you start panning around and the panning gets more and more desperate as you can't find that little blue line that represents your route. And so here you are lost in a map program. <laughs> you know, how does that work? But so what do you do when you can't figure out where you are? You kind of lost your overall bearings. You have to zoom out right and get the big picture again. And so for the last Four months now, we've been on a journey through the book of Nehemiah, and we've been pretty zoomed in. We've been looking at the details as we've gone through this verse by verse, and what I want to do this morning before we move into our next series in a couple of weeks, I want to zoom out. I want to step back, and I want to look at the overall structure of that book and just pull out some of the high points. This was really hard for me. I was sharing with someone this morning. It's kind of like when you take a bunch of pictures of your kids and grandkids and my grandson and my daughter and son-in-law are here this weekend. When you take those pictures, it's hard to delete any of them, right? <laughs> Even the ones that are blurry, it's hard to delete them. It's hard to pare it down. It was kind of like that preparing this summary of Nehemiah. But I've done my best and uh, we'll just work through this together. So the message title this morning is Looking Back, and it's a recap of Nehemiah. And we won't have a normal outline, but one will just pop up here. Don't bother writing these down. These are the different messages we had and the titles of those. And we're just going to kind of work our way through this and draw out some important points. And again, hopefully see something new as we look at the whole. And so 
As you turn to the book of Nehemiah, our series title from the beginning has been Rising from the Ruins. And I picked that title because Nehemiah stood out as a godly man and a godly leader amongst not just the ruins of the city, but the ruins of society. And God used him to restore both the physical city of Jerusalem and the spiritual state of the people. And so when you think about the United States of America on this 4th of July weekend, I think you'd have to say that despite our prosperity, our society is in ruins. Families, relationships, schools, government, even some churches have fallen apart and are in spiritual ruins. And so it makes me sad in one sense to think about it, but it also represents a great opportunity for you to be used by God. And just like Nehemiah, to rise up from the ruins and be part of a process of restoration. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So where do we start? Well, we began our series with the simple question, who cares? Who cares? That was the title of the chapter one message. Who cares? Nehemiah why should he care? He had this really successful career in a really prominent position. He, he worked for the, the king of Persia. And he lived in the citadel of Susa, the palace of Susa. He had it made in the shade, we might say today. Here's just a, a, a little glimpse of Nehemiah's digs, so to speak. This is the ruins of the city of Susa it's in modern-day Iran. And they're scattered about these ruins, these enormous pieces, these enormous reminders of what this once looked like. These are 2,500 years old. And this particular piece here, it sits in the Louvre in France, and it's a capital that stood atop one of the columns of the palace. Here's an artist's rendition of that palace. These columns were 70 foot tall, and this enormous capital is that little tiny thing on top of those columns. This was Nehemiah's home. This was his place of employment, his office. He had it good. Why should he care about what's happening to the people in Jerusalem 750 miles away? Well, he did care. And in fact, when he thought about the shame that the condition of the city of Jerusalem brought, uh, on, upon the Lord, really, the, the reflection it had on the Lord and the danger it brought for his people, it moved him to tears. Take a look at verse 4 in chapter 1 of Nehemiah. Nehemiah writes, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah, he wasn't about building his own kingdom. He wasn't even about building the kingdom of Persia. He was about building the kingdom of God on earth. That's what he oriented his whole life towards. And so we saw in chapter 1 that Nehemiah, first of all, he cared. And then he inquired. And then he prayed. And then he got involved. So just a first question for us to consider. Who cares? Who cares about the things that God cares about? Who cares enough to do something, to get involved? We have a great example in Nehemiah, and I think we have many great examples all around us here today. 
We have a man in our church who God used to preserve Christian freedoms in the United States Bureau of Prisons by taking a stand. He served there as a warden for 30 years. And his stand of faith set a precedent that remains today in the Bureau of Prisons. We have people in our church who are getting involved with the conduct of local school boards and who are serving as, as judges in polling places. We have people running Christian businesses that greatly impact the lives of their employees and, and are a bright light in a dark place in the communities where they, where they work. We have people involved in Bible studies that are transforming marriages and families. We have people going into schools and going into prisons to share the gospel. There are many ways that people today can be used by God and just like Nehemiah can rise up from the ruins of this society and bring about restoration. But it begins by caring, caring about the things God cares about and then inquiring about them and praying about them and then being willing to get involved as God leads. So we move next into chapter two where we saw God's perfect timing. This is a fascinating chapter because after Nehemiah prayed, he didn't do anything right away. He waited. He waited for the Lord for the right time to act. And the amazing thing is that God heard Nehemiah's prayer before the foundations of the earth. And he wove it not only into God's plan of salvation, but into his prophetic word. Nehemiah's prayer and the answer to it is part of God's plan of salvation and his prophecy of the Messiah. We looked at Daniel chapter 9, which is a mathematical prophecy of the very day in which the Savior would be revealed to Israel as the Savior, the Messiah. And we saw that it would be 483 years by the Jewish calendar, 360 days per year. And that's 173,880 days from a specific event. What was that event? That event was the decree that King Artaxerxes gave to Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8. When Artaxerxes said, go, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That started the prophetic calendar. And we know that that was on March 14th, 445 BC. And so if you count forward 173,880 days, it's the very day in which the lambs were being presented for inspection before the Jewish Passover, the 10th of Nisan. Isn't that interesting? Well, it's also the very day that Jesus Christ was presented to the nation as the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember how before Jesus went into the city of Jerusalem, he stood on the Mount of Olives and he looked out over it? He didn't rejoice, he wept. He wept because they, he knew they would reject him and he knew the judgment that would come upon them as they rejected their Messiah. And, and this would come upon him, quote, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Or in the ASV, the day of your visitation. God had laid it out mathematically and Nehemiah Chapter 2, verse 8, was the trigger point for that prophecy of the Messiah. We saw God's fascinating, perfect timing, and Nehemiah waited on it. 
the late Warren Wiersbe said this, when you wait on the Lord in prayer, you're not wasting your time, you're investing it. God is preparing both you and your circumstances so that his purpose will be accomplished. Now, just a word of caution about waiting on the Lord. Don't use that as an excuse for inactivity. Well, it must not be the Lord's time yet. Why not? Well, he hadn't pushed me out of my recliner yet. So it must not be his time. No, see, waiting on the Lord means being ready and willing to move into action. We're just prayerfully waiting for the Lord's perfect timing. God's timing is always perfect. He can orchestrate world events and even world leaders. They're his servants, Proverbs 21.1 says. He can bring all that together to accomplish his, perfect, his purpose. And so then we come to some heavy lifting in the second half of chapter 2 and in chapter 3. And it's here that we're first introduced to two of Nehemiah's enemies. They're his antagonists, Sanballat and Tobias. Take a look at chapter 2, verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. How dare they promote the welfare of the Israelites? Now, Nehemiah was not deterred by this opposition, and we shouldn't be either. Whenever God is at work, we should expect there to be opposition. Jesus promised it. He said, you're going to face opposition. They hated me. They're going to hate you too. They're going to oppose you. So we have to remember that if it's God's will that we do something, then he will supply the wisdom, the strength, and the resources to get it done. We can't be deterred by opposition. Now, one of the things I love about the book of Nehemiah is that it presents this proper balance between the physical and the spiritual. And we see it at several points in this book. We see that these two go hand in hand. And so, yes, God would provide the wisdom, strength, and resources to get the job done. But that doesn't mean that Nehemiah could just sit around and wait for God to do the work. He couldn't just kick back. No, he had to be ready to go. Nehemiah had to get moving. And then God would work through him as he moves forward. We looked at this quote from Bill Bright, which I really like. He's the, the founder, the late founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. He said, remember, just as the turning of a steering wheel of an automobile does not alter its direction unless it is moving, so God cannot direct our lives unless we are moving for him. Yes, it's God's power. It's God's resources. He's going to get it done. But he works through human agency. He works through us. So Nehemiah, he began with prayer, and then he moved on to planning. It was very practical. And it's not one or the other. The two go hand in hand. Prayer and planning go hand in hand. The spiritual and the physical. Listen to Proverbs 16.3. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and your plans will succeed. See? Prayer and planning. Spiritual, physical, right there in the same verse. So we need to have the right balance on these things ourselves. Nehemiah did. And the people followed his leadership. And in verse 18, it says, they replied, let us start rebuilding. 
And so they began this good work. Well, then we move into chapter 4, where now we're going to see work and warfare. Chapter 4 is one of my two favorite chapters in the book. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But first look at verses 7 and 8. It says, but when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the, the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead, and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. Here comes the opposition. Now, throughout this series, we looked at different archaeological Evidence, And I love this personally. I love seeing these things. It's like history that we can see and touch. And so let me just pull a little bit of that in there. Nehemiah is the only book in the Bible where the name Sanballat is mentioned. And critics would say, well, it, it, it wasn't really an historical person. And that's what they said until 1909 when archaeologists dug this up on an island in Egypt in the middle of the Nile River. It's known as the Elephantine Papyrus. And it's interesting what this document says. It's actually a letter written in 407 BC to Sanballat's sons. And it reads, to, to Deliah and Shelemiah, sons of Sanballat, governor of Samaria. And then the letter also states, we sent a letter to our Lord and to Johanan, the high priest and his colleagues, the priests who are in Jerusalem. Johohan, I think it's how it's pronounced, was in fact the high priest during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And his name is recorded in both those books of the Bible. And then in 1962, they're digging around in this desolate cave near Samaria. It's believed to be the final resting place of Sanballat's family when they were conquered by Alexander the Great. And there were a whole lot of cache of documents, and one of them had a seal on it, a clay seal, and it's known as a Sanballat Bulla. And it's currently in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. And this references once again his name. So archaeology has proved, once again, in fact, thousands and thousands of times that the word of God is historically accurate. It's true. So anyway, in chapter 4, work on the wall and the gates is progressing and Sambalat and Tobiah and their cronies are all stirred up. They're very angry. And so they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem we said that expecting that the world will treat you fairly because you're a good person is like expecting a bull not to attack you because you're a vegetarian. <laughs> it isn't going to happen. The bull's going to attack you. The world's going to attack you. So how did Nehemiah respond to that? Well, this is what makes this one of my two favorite chapters in the book. Look at verse 9. It says... But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Nehemiah didn't just pray. He didn't just pray. He did pray, but he didn't just pray. He didn't just let go and let God. No, he prayed and then he posted an armed guard day and night to meet the threat. In verse 13 tells us that these guards had swords, spears, bows. Those are lethal weapons. He was prepared to use lethal force to defend the city of Jerusalem if need be. 
They had a, a tool for the work in the wall in one hand and a sword in the other as they did this rebuilding. So let me challenge you again with this question. Does the fact that he posted a guard mean that he didn't have enough faith? He prayed, but then he posted a guard. Was it a sign of weakness? Of course not. Of course not. God often works through human agency or human activity in answering our prayers. If you lock the doors on your house, does it mean you don't have enough faith? If you have an alarm system or you own a gun, does it mean you don't have enough faith in God to protect you? No. See, these two go hand in hand. We pray to God and we take action. The spiritual and the physical, and they go hand in hand. And that's what we see over and over in Nehemiah. Remember the story of the man who lived in a two-story house alongside the river? And the river was flooding. And they put out warnings on TV and radio and cell phone. You know, head to higher ground. There's a flood coming. And so a jeep comes by the man's house and he says, we need to evacuate you. You're going to drown. There's a flood coming. He goes, oh, no, don't worry about me. God's going to take care of me. And he refuses to go. So the water rises and he has to move up to the second story of his house. And now a boat comes by. And they say, we need to evacuate you. This place is going to flood. You're going to drown. Get out of here. And oh, no, no. God's going to take care of me. I prayed to God. I'm trusting in him. The waters keep rising. Now he's on the roof of his house. And a helicopter comes by with the loudspeaker. Hold on to the basket. We need to rescue you. You're going to drown. Oh, no. I prayed. I have faith. God's going to take care of me. The water kept going up. The man drowned. He stands before the Lord in heaven. And he says, God, I prayed. Why didn't you rescue me? He says, and God says, I sent a, a jeep, a boat, and a helicopter. What more were you looking for? See, God answers our prayers often through human agency. So Nehemiah prayed and he took up weapons. I love that, how practical he was. And we need to, maybe we need to adjust our thinking a little bit there about just how God works and how these two go hand in hand. Well, Nehemiah understood that the battle he faced was both spiritual and physical. And so the weapons he chose were both spiritual and physical. Think about some of the battles you're facing. Are they spiritual or are they physical? Chances are they're both. They're both. Now, I, nothing would seem more physical than maybe a battle with cancer, right? It's attacking your physical body. But there is a spiritual element to that as well. See, the enemy wants you to become discouraged. He wants you to think that God doesn't care and that his word isn't true. He wants you to turn your back on God. So if these battles are both spiritual and physical, then the weapons we need to use to fight them should be spiritual and physical. So they start with the spiritual. Pray. And put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Ephesians 6, 10. Then, prepare for action. If you're seriously ill, pray. And go see a doctor. If you've lost your job, pray. And then get out your resume and clean it up. And put in some applications 
do some interviews, spiritual and physical. If you're trying to sell your house, pray, commit it to the Lord. But then get the house ready for the market and contact a realtor. See, to only do one, to just pray and expect that it's going to sell, it'd be foolish. But to go do all your activity and not pray and not give it over to the Lord would be just as foolish. The two go hand in hand. So this is a principle we see in Nehemiah. That's what makes this one of my favorite chapters. He prayed and then he took up arms. I think these pictures say a lot. A godly soldier who's not depending on himself or his weapons alone to protect him, but on God. It gives new meaning to prayer warrior, doesn't it? They go into the battle armed, but prayerful. See, it's God that gives the victory. A Christian soldier knows that. So the next thing then in Jerusalem, what was needed next was some godly governance. And we see that in chapter 5. Nehemiah, he's a busy man. He's overseeing thousands of people working on the wall. He's got his hands full, but then he has to deal with some people problems too. He's under a different kind of attack, and it's an attack from within. Some of the wealthy Jews were charging interest to their brothers. And in fact, they were charging what's called usury. Usury is excessive interest. And in ancient times, it could sometimes reach 50%. So the families were having to sell their land, their source of income. And they were even having to sell their children into slavery to pay this usury and to pay the tax to the king. So this, this practice of interest and usury toward fellow Israelites was against God's law. And so here, for the first time, but not the last, we see Nehemiah's righteous anger. And it says in chapter 5, verse 6, When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Nehemiah was ticked. He's like, you guys aren't supposed to be doing this. And so verse 9, so I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in fear of our God and avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? And down in verse 12, we will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Really, they're doing as God says. But then Nehemiah says, I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. But Nehemiah went beyond just enforcing these right godly practices with these officials. He set an example himself. He would not take from the people. Rather, he would share with them what God had given to him. In verse 17, it tells us that he would feed 150 people at his table daily. Nehemiah freely shared what he had because he was trusting that God would provide all that he needed. That's what giving does in us. It's a demonstration of our trust in the Lord, our belief in his promise to take care of us. So to work on the walls, amazing. It was finished in 52 days. The enemies couldn't stop it. So now they had a new plan of attack. They were going to take out Nehemiah. Nehemiah would have to draw upon all the wisdom that God had given him 
in order to see through these various plots as he, what he has to do next is discern evil in chapter 6. So there's one plot after another after another against Nehemiah. Now at some point I'd be tempted to think, okay, maybe God's not in this after all. Maybe I prayed about that whole thing, but I just missed it. I, I, I missed the call here. This is not God's desire for me. Because if it were, why would I face all of this opposition? This can't be the will of the Lord. But we just saw quite the contrary. See, when we're doing the will of God, we should expect opposition. And so Nehemiah doesn't let this opposition deter him. He keeps going. Do you ever feel that way, though? So much opposition. How can this be the will of God? Well, Sanballat, Tobiah, and company, they launched this plan to lure Nehemiah out into the countryside and kill him. But Nehemiah sees right through it. And so then they started a campaign of misinformation to get him in trouble with the king of Persia that he still worked for. Five times they sent this same false message that Nehemiah and the Jews were plotting to revolt against the king. But it wasn't true. When that didn't work, they hired a religious leader to prophesy against Nehemiah. Hey, they're trying to kill you. Come hide in the temple. I mean, it sounds like a good thing to do. But Nehemiah knew it was contrary to God's word that that was a sacred place. He wasn't to go into that particular area of the temple and so he didn't fall for it. In verse 12, he says, I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. So he didn't fall for any of these things. He didn't fall for the assassination attempt or the misinformation or, the, or the, the plot to lure him into sin. Why not? Because he had discernment. Discernment is the ability to judge matters according to God's view of them, not according to their outward appearance. Where did he get this discernment? Same place you and I can get it. From knowing the word of God and from staying close to the Lord in prayer. Those two tools help Nehemiah see through each of these plots. And you know what? You and I need discernment. We need discernment in business deals. We need discernment in church matters. We need discernment everywhere in life. Because there's misinformation all around us. There's people trying to mislead us and trip us up. So where do we get that discernment? We get it from the word of God. Knowing the word of God and staying close to the Lord. Those are the tools we have. And when we do that, the spirit of God gives us the wisdom we need to make right decisions. So Nehemiah was able to discern good and evil. And then in chapter 7, the walls and the gates are nearing completion and Nehemiah turns his, his focus toward guarding the work, we called it. And he does this by putting in place some rules and some qualified leaders. Now, chapter 7 is not one of my favorite chapters in the book. That's where he got into the first of several lists of long names. And no, Tony, I'm not going to read those names again. I'm thankful to be done with that. But one of the things that we saw 
was that character is the most important quality for any leader in any position, whether spiritual or secular. Character is the most important quality. Look at chapter 7, verse 2. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. The men Nehemiah chose feared God. They had the right character qualifications. Not they were big, strong men. The people liked them. They were witty. They were attractive. No, they were men of character and integrity. So on to chapter 8, which is my other favorite now. The physical work of restoring, restoring the walls was completed, but the most important work was yet ahead. And that was the spiritual work of restoring worship. God is always concerned more about people than buildings. Buildings are important, but only to the extent that they serve a purpose of enabling worship. I'm thankful Riverside has this building. For the first, you know, 20-some years of our existence as a church, we didn't have a building until 2006. The building has enabled us to have midweek ministries and have a place where we can come and we can worship and we can have Christian weddings and memorial services and we can have homeschool families doing Christian education. We can have Bible studies. The building's important and we want to care for it but it's important because it enables us to worship the Lord together. So with the walls finished, they gathered all the people together and the scribes and then the Levites stood on a high platform that they built. And it says in verse 8, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. What a concept. They were, first of all, speaking the language that the people understood, and they're unpacking it, they're explaining it, they're applying it. You know what they're doing? Expository teaching. I love that. They were doing expository teaching. They didn't just read it. They explained it. And look at the result in verse 12. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Praise God. The most important job for spiritual leaders is to teach the word of God. That's number one. It's the key not only to our salvation. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. But it's the key to our sanctification, to growing in Christ-likeness. It's the word of God. Now, we looked at two very powerful quotes when we're in this chapter. The first is from Noah Webster, and it was written in 1832. And he says, all the miseries and evils which men suffer from, vice, crime, ambition, injustice, oppression, slavery, and war, proceed from their despising or neglecting the precepts contained in the Bible. I love Noah Webster. I wish we had more people like him today. And then we looked at Martin Luther, the great reformer. And Martin Luther said this, I am afraid that the very schools will prove, that the schools will prove to be the very gates of hell unless they diligently labor in explaining the holy scriptures and engraving them in the hearts of the youth. Man, that was prophetic, wasn't it? I'm sorry, but many of our schools are the very gates of hell. 
Christian youth go there and they turn their back on the Lord because they're bombarded with lies. They're bombarded with ungodliness and they walk away from the Lord. Well, our country is in decline because our churches are in decline. And our churches are in decline largely because they are void of solid, in-depth, extensive Bible teaching. I believe that. Take a look at a church that's struggling. They're probably not teaching the word of God. I don't mean struggling like they don't have anybody coming. You can always, you know, round up a crowd. But they're struggling spiritually because they're not grounded in the word of God. So our number one job is to teach the word of God effectively. It, uh, I like the pastor in India who phoned his Christian friend back in the United States. And he said, I am very, very happy to report that we are having a great revival. And not revival, but revival. Revival. And you know, he, he hit on something there. If we want to have a revival in this country, we need a revival. We need more churches to return to teaching God's word. And this is what they did in Nehemiah chapter 8. The result is seen in chapter 9 where the people have an honest assessment of God and of themselves. As they continue day after day hearing and understanding the word of God, they're looking upward at God. And they're, they're seeing who he is, their loving creator. They look backward at all that he had done for them. His compassion, his mercy, his love, his long-suffering. His provision for them again and again, his deliverance. And then they look inward and they see their own sinfulness and rebellion. And I think it's summed up pretty well in chapter 9 in verses 33 through 35. It says, in all that has happened to us, you've been just. You have acted faithfully while we, while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them. Even while they were in the kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. That sounds more and more like America, doesn't it? A country that's turned its back on God. All of this, they realized as they were reading the word of God. There was conviction coming. They looked upward. They looked backward at God's faithfulness. They looked inward at their sinfulness. And then finally, they looked forward in verse uh, 38. It says, in view of all this, we're making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. See, they had a change of mind, which resulted in a change of direction. That's the definition of repentance, to change your mind. And when you do, it changes how you act. It changes the direction you're moving. As you reflect on the word of God this morning, are there places where God is showing you that you need Repentance? A change of mind? I've been thinking about that wrong. I need to change the way I think about this. I need to go the other way. Well, for the Israelites, this, this repentance would lead next to a personal commitment, which we see in chapter 10. And there's another long list of priests and Levites and leaders that signed this commitment. 
I'm one behind. And they say in chapter 10, verse 29, all these now join their brothers, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all of the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. That's saying, we're going to do this. We're starting fresh. We're starting over. We're going to follow the word of God. And they not only sign their name to it and make an oath, they say, you know, curse us if we don't do this. They sign it with a curse as well. See, there may be areas, there probably are areas in each of our lives where looking at the word of God should bring conviction and repentance that leads to a new commitment going forward. A personal commitment between us and God. So we move on to chapter 11, where the Israelites are on the move. Things are looking pretty good for the nation of Israel. The wall was done, except there weren't many people living in the city. And this was God's chosen nation. The place where he would hang his name. Israel was a very special place to God. But there weren't even enough people living there to support and defend it. And so they gathered the people together and they made this agreement that we're going to cast lots. And one out of every ten people is going to leave their farm out around the land of Israel. And they're going to move to the city of Jerusalem and populate it. And as we looked at this chapter, we asked these questions of ourselves. Are you on the move for God? Are you willing to go wherever he leads you? And maybe that's around the world. Or maybe it's just across the street. Maybe it's into a school in Elburn. Maybe it's a prison in Rockford. Are you willing to go? Are you willing to move? To be on the move for God? And we looked at a couple mistakes that we can have as we evaluate that. One mistake is waiting for some miraculous sign. Rather than just following the plain, simple instruction that we have in God's word. Well, I'm waiting until whatever happens. Well, read what God says about what he wants us doing. What we're called to be. It's in there. He's given us his commission. So don't wait for something miraculous to move you. And then a second mistake can be in only thinking of the big things. Things that God probably isn't calling us to. And overlooking the, the day-to-day smaller things God is calling us to. Well, God hadn't called me to go to India and be a missionary. And that's probably true. He called one family in our church, but he probably hasn't called you. But has he called you to engage with your neighbor? Is he maybe calling you to get involved in that school program? We have more children wanting to hear the gospel than we have people willing to share it. Has he called you to maybe start some new ministry? See, we don't want to overlook the little things that God very clearly calls each one of us to. So are we willing to follow him? Are we on the move for God? Well, finally, next to last, we come to the high point in the book, and it's chapter 12. This is the spiritual climax, a spiritual summit, as Jerusalem, the city, is filled with joyful worship. Now, revival didn't begin with this joyful singing. It began with conviction and repentance, but it turned into joyful singing and worship. 
So we saw in chapter 12 this beautiful dedication ceremony for the walls and this joyous time of worship. Nehemiah gets uh, a choir of thousands, two of them in fact, and they head out in different directions along the top of the wall, two and a half miles of wall. And as they proceed along the wall, they're singing and they're worshiping God and there's all these instruments involved. It's a loud, joyful celebration. We see in chapter 12, Singing mentioned eight times, thanksgiving six times, rejoicing seven times, musical instruments three times. I mean, this is, a, this is a worship service. And we looked at a quote that Martin Luther said, another Luther quote. He says, next to theology, I give to music the highest place and the greatest honor. Beautiful music is the art of the prophets that can calm the agitations of the soul it's one of the most magnificent and delightful presents God has given us. The freedom to come this morning and to worship the Lord together. Yet many of us look at it wrong. We look at it like, oh, I don't get anything out of that. It doesn't do anything for me. I'm not really musical. It doesn't matter what you get out of it. It's what we give to the Lord through it. We're giving him a sacrifice of praise. And so we come before the Lord. Now this was pretty contemporary worship. I would say at the time. I know worship. Worship music is something that can so easily divide people. And it's particularly challenging in an intergenerational church. Like we have. Where we have singles and we have seniors. And everything in between. Praise God. But some might go, I only want contemporary music. You know what? Last week, Matt led us in a very contemporary worship set. We had drums, guitar, electric guitar, keyboards. It was awesome. This week, something more acoustical, a little slowed down. These things are by design. You might go, well, I like that one, but I don't like that one. Get over it. <laughs> For the joy. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be like mean. But I do mean that. For the joy of being a unified intergenerational body, let's give that over to the Lord as a sacrifice and let's worship him together. We really try to be intentional. We have five worship leaders and we wanna worship the Lord in different formats and styles that are meaningful to different people. So remember this quote from A.W. Tozer? This, was a, this one will kinda of hit me between the eyes. It says, I can safely say on the authority of all that is revealed in the word of God that any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. Yeah. Musical worship is what it's speaking of. Now, studying the Bible is an act of worship. Serving, spreading mulch, it's an act of worship. But this is talking specifically about musical worship. So this is the high point. And the people lived godly ever after. Right? Uh-uh. If you are here last week, you know that's not how it turned out. I wish it stopped at chapter 12, but it doesn't. There's chapter 13. And in the final chapter, we see, yeah, chapter 13, bankruptcy. Like spiritual bankruptcy. We called it spiritual entropy. The tendency of everything. Without outside energy or influence, the tendency of it to decay, to erode, to fall backwards. So Nehemiah spent 12 years in Jerusalem, but he kept a commitment to the king that at an appointed time he would return to Persia. And he did that, and we think he was there for 10 or 12 years. But then 
he heads back to Jerusalem. And what does he find? Spiritual entropy everywhere. The people had fallen backwards in the areas of leadership, stewardship, worship, and relationship. And it began at the top with the high priest, the highest religious leader in the land, Eliashib. What did he do? He said, well, we don't need this storeroom for the offerings and the implements of worship. Let's get rid of this stuff. And I'm going to rent the space out as a, as a bedroom for Tobiah, the enemy of Israel. And so Tobiah wormed his way into the temple and into the people's hearts and began leading people astray. Unqualified leaders in, in, in spiritual places. And then they were not only that, the people stopped offering their gifts to the Lord. And so they couldn't provide for the priests and Levites that were responsible for the worship and all the conduct at the temple. So they had to lay them off. They had to go back to their hometowns and try to find work. And the people are buying and selling on the Sabbath in contradiction to the word of God. And they're intermarrying with the pagans around them. They pretty much broke every single commitment that they made to the Lord just a few chapters before. Nehemiah had to again take charge. He threw Tobiah out. He threw his stuff out of the temple. And he rebuked and disciplined the people. He practiced like the ancient version of what we would call church discipline. Tolerance of sin is not a virtue. Jesus wrote to the church in Revelation. You know, you do this and this and it's all good. But I have this one thing against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who leads people astray by her sexual immorality. But we got to tolerate it. It's love. No, it's not. It's sin. Remember, love never endorses sin. So Nehemiah had to clean house. But aren't you thankful that your salvation is not based upon how well you can keep the law of God or the commitments you make to God? Aren't you thankful for that? Because what this chapter and this book really reveals is a nation that was in desperate need of a savior. That's what we see. And that was the whole point of the law in the Old Testament. To point us to Christ. Romans 8, 3 and 4. It says, for what the law was powerless to do. And that it was weakened by the sinful nature. God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful man. To be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. So as New Testament believers, if your faith is in Christ, you have something that Nehemiah and his people didn't have. You have a risen savior who sits beside on the right, at the right hand of God the Father. Interceding for you. You have the spirit of God resident within you. Not just moving upon you, but within you. You have the power to say no to sin. That's something they did never have. So, wrapping up the wrap-up, bringing this to a conclusion, 
Uh, and any one of these, if you want more detail, all the messages are out on the website, the audio, the video, the PowerPoint is there under download. But something also, also is there, the Encore study guide is there for every one of these chapters. And that Encore guide is a more in-depth look at the content from the message, the text, and it's challenging questions in application. Dan puts that together every Monday. And you could take those and you could go deeper and actually put this into practice with the, and let that be a guide to lead you. There's Encore Kids on the back with activities and dialogue questions for the whole family. So that's available. But as I mentioned in the beginning, God has here at Riverside raised up people in the midst of the ruins. People like Nehemiah that stand as a great example and who provide restoration to the, the society around us, spiritual and physical restoration. And the, the thing is, God would like to use every one of us. He'd like to raise us up. First in salvation, it's got to start there. But then he'd like to raise us up into fruitful ministry. Ministry that has an impact in these ruinous times we're living in. And I named several examples. But maybe there's people who do not have a fruitful ministry. That God would say, I want to raise you up. I want to rise you up from the ruins. And I want to empower you to go into a place that I call you to. To do the kingdom work here on earth. Well, that's what I hope we take away from the study of Nehemiah. That we want to be about spiritual restoration. And that God can equip us to do just that. Would you just pray with me as we close? Heavenly Father, uh, we, we sometimes sing the hymn, How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. And that's what I see in this book of Nehemiah, God, a firm foundation, a rock-solid example of faithfulness. God, I pray that you would use this word to challenge us and to change us. Change us into the men and the women that you want us to be. And fill us with your spirit and give us a renewed passion for your work, God. Raise us up from the ruins around us and use us, use me in a mighty work of restoration, God, and do this for your kingdom and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.